Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today my plan is to subject you to a little experiment in podcast episode formatting. Our goal here is obviously to keep things fresh so that you never get bored of our straight-up interviews or our Bar Cart Foundations episodes. And so today we're going to mix things up again and see what everyone thinks. So please do email us at podcast at modernbarcart.com and tell us what you think of this episode. This is a busy time of year for us here at Modern Bar Cart. We've got some new product lines launching and we've got the holiday gift season already ramping up. And in addition to all that, the podcast team and I are working hard on some fun new episodes that require a bit more narration, sound work, and stitching together of multiple audio files. So a little bit more work on our end, and while we do that, I'm going to test out a new episode format that I'm going to call Thinking About Drinking. And the goal of these types of episodes is to kind of lift our heads out of the recipe books and try and get a sense of the bigger picture. How do cocktails relate to the rest of the world? What does it mean to call yourself a home bartender? What are some of the internal and external forces that shape our cocktail-related decisions? I've been listening to a really amazing and very well-known podcast series recently called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. And I think listening to is a bit insufficient. I think really the term is I've been binging on it. And one of the things I think he does better than anybody else out there is he takes a really big, almost hopelessly complex event or topic like World War One or the Persian Empire, and he helps listeners kind of untangle all the curious and intertwining threads of that large situation so that we can understand the multiple forces at work beneath the surface. If you think about it, cocktails are all about what's beneath the surface. They're all about those individual ingredients that get combined in this really technical way, or maybe this magical way, if you don't really understand what's going on. And it creates a whole that's so much more delicious than the sum of its parts. I've said that before. It's kind of like a Captain Planet situation where you've got your individual spirits have their, you know, kind of their own superpower. Your mixers, your vermouths, they all have their own kind of special skill or superpower. And then when you get them together and they combine their powers and they hold up their rings and then Captain Planet shows up, it's kind of like the this same thing that's happening with a cocktail when you mix all those things together in the right way. Yeah, it's easy to walk up to a cocktail and just kind of drop it into a big category, say Martini or Negroni or Manhattan, just like we put labels on those big things that Dan Carlin's talking about, historical timestamps, empires, wars. But this podcast isn't about what's easy. It's not about just putting things into big buckets and walking away. It's about learning those little bits of nuance that make all the difference in the world.
The narrative I'm going to weave for you today involves 20th century neuroscientists, 19th century neo-impressionist painters, and even our oldest proto-human ancestors who first descended from the trees and made their way in small groups out into the open savanna in Africa. It's the story of how and why we process and perceive flavor the way we do, and why the neurological systems involved in this everyday experience are beautiful, almost, almost beyond our understanding. And before I jump in, I should probably mention that there's also some great discussion of the psychological experience of flavor in my interview with psychology professor and flavor researcher Dan McCall from Gettysburg College. So please do check out that episode to get some perspective on all this stuff from someone with lots more academic and research credentials than I have. But today, like I said, you're going to get my perspective. And it helps to know that my perspective is what it is because of some really important and formative experiences. My background, academically speaking, is in poetry. And while I was working toward my MFA in poetry at the University of Maryland in College Park, I was tasked with teaching a number of English 101 courses, mostly for freshmen just entering college. And one of the really unique and I think valuable characteristics of the UMD English 101 common curriculum was their emphasis on rhetoric which is the act of persuasion. It's the art of building strong, compelling arguments and entering into large conversations with multiple people and multiple groups of people. And I'd never officially taken a rhetoric class, so I kind of had to learn the basics before I could confidently teach that subject matter to my students. One of the key components I learned about creating strong arguments, especially in an academic setting, was the use of evidence to build a case from the ground up. It's called inductive logic. And this seems like a really obvious kind of non-revolutionary thing until you consider that most of the rhetoric we encounter on a daily basis is extremely deductive or top-down. And it can really only hold up if everybody involved in the conversation shares a common set of assumptions and values. How often does that happen? And you know, as we know, the result of all this deductive d discourse, you know, from the talking heads on TV and the internet, all it is is a whole lot of yelling, posturing, emotional sleight of hand, and really not a whole lot of productive dialogue or interesting insights or really any progress. It's a lot of people talking in circles and making each other angry and then storming out of the room. Most often... Deductive arguments are based on a bunch of assumptions that add up to a greater assumption. And really, this sort of thing is only effective in mathematics and certain branches of philosophy. Everywhere else, it's literally poised to go off the rails here in the real world. Perfect example is the divine right logic. This is how ancient and medieval monarchs would justify their rule. Assumption one, God is in charge. Assumption two, God told me I'm in charge of stuff here on earth on his behalf. Conclusion, therefore I have the divine right to govern all you small, illiterate peasants. Subconclusion, by the way, you're going to go to hell if you don't honor my rule. Remember, because it was God's idea, and if you don't go along with it, then you're disagreeing with him, and that's a sin. 
you can kind of see how an argument that operates on so many assumptions, which by the way, might not be shared by everybody, isn't super attractive to someone whose chief priority is to understand the functional mechanics of the world we live in. Somebody who asks asks questions and you know challenges things. It's great for absolute monarchs and largely preliterate societies, but not great for us here today. Inductive or bottom-up logic, on the other hand, is much more suited to crafting a big-picture understanding of the world that's both flexible enough to fit into multiple realities or value systems, but also specific and grounded enough for the majority of people to understand and agree with, or at least form an opinion. It deals largely with facts, with data points instead of assumptions, and it can be influenced and modified by new information that comes to light. Here's an example. Fact one, the sun rose this morning. Fact two, the sun rose yesterday morning. Fact number three through fact number virtually infinity, the sun has risen every day since the beginning of recorded time. Remember, that last fact is really isn't one fact, it's a bajillion facts. Conclusion, it is therefore reasonable to believe that the sun will rise tomorrow. Now, let's throw a curveball in there. Let's say there's a giant meteor hurtling toward Earth that's going to absolutely obliterate the planet before sunrise tomorrow. Does that change the outcome? Absolutely it does. Inductive thinking is always sensitive to changes and nuances that maybe weren't available to use a moment or a year or a generation ago, and that's why scientific theories continue to evolve. And it's a good thing because otherwise we'd still be operating on the assumption that the earth is flat and that jealous gods are responsible for the success of the harvest. This is all to say that my whole approach to cocktails and mixology is inductive. It's grounded in facts and observable experiences. I think it has to be if it's going to be accessible for someone who's just starting out on the home bartending journey. Because when you're just learning about cocktails, you don't have the luxury of assumptions. Everything's new. Everything's a learning experience. Every new cocktail you attempt is an individual data point or datum that moves you along your journey. And once you've gathered enough data, you can look back over all your experience and say, based on what I know, I find these ingredients and techniques to be the most pleasing when mixing a Manhattan, for example. But this statement is always available for revision. And the beauty here is that the nuance actually drives the logic. It doesn't get run over by it. And this is why I'm so intrigued by particles, by little data points on a chart that might or might not add up to something. It goes all the way back to our primal hunting instinct of following signs we find in the earth to track down a prey animal. A hoof print here, a bent blade of grass there, these are the small data points that form a trail to the end goal. God can't tell us how to find the deer that will feed the tribe tonight. We must find it by reading the earth, by using our senses and allowing them to guide our pursuit. The thrill and the psychological excitement of following a trail is also one of the reasons why detective movies and jigsaw puzzles really never go out of style. It's because there's always something to be discovered if you can just hone your senses and arrange all the little seemingly insignificant data points into a meaningful picture. The trail that we're following today 
using our inductive data gathering instinct is the trail that flavor takes through the brain. And I'll spoil the ending early when I tell you that what we'll find at the end of this trail rivals the beauty of the world's most revered impressionist paintings. As I mentioned earlier, the trail begins when our first ancestors dropped out of the trees and into the ancient savannas with prehistoric predators lurking around every corner. And when you compare the physical capabilities of early hominids to those of the fanged and clawed and hooved monstrosities, killing machines really, that truly viewed them as lunch, you start to wonder how exactly we made it out of there alive to reproduce and eventually dominate this planet. And the answer, in a word, is eyesight. At this point, if I were you, I'd be like, wait, 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 I thought we were talking about flavor here. Why should I care about monkey people, saber-toothed tigers, eyesight, any of this stuff? Well, the problem with flavor is that it's been traditionally a bit tricky to study at the neurological level, but what we do know about it is really similar to some of the things we know about visual perception in humans and other animals. So the whole saber-toothed tiger crouching in the grass story is actually more relevant than you'd think. Let me explain. Relative to its size, the human brain uses up way more energy than the rest of our organs. Way, way, way more. And in a world where calories were scarce, the humans with the brains that were able to conserve as much energy as possible without really screwing over their owner, for lack of a better phrase, tended to survive long enough to reproduce and pass on their genes to the next generation. That's survival of the fittest. That's how we evolve. Now, there are two primary types of processing the brain engages in. One is called conscious processing, and the other is, you guessed it, unconscious processing. And the difference is pretty apparent. When someone asks you a question you weren't expecting, you're forced to deal with something new or unexpected, you engage in conscious processing. And when you do something without thinking, like stopping at a red traffic light, for example, you engage in unconscious processing. Sure, maybe the first few times you drove a car, that stopping at a red light was conscious, but over time the action became ingrained in your brain, and now you do it without having to exhaust any mental resources to speak of. We've all heard the old cliche, time is money, and if you think about things from the perspective of those first early humans, time was crucial. I mean, we today think of these pre-agrarian societies as just kind of hanging out picking some fruit maybe spearing a few fish and so it's easy to think that time was no big thing to them the fruit's going to be there tomorrow there's going to be fish we'll get food when we need it not a whole lot of things like farming or science to occupy us remember those awful predators crouching in the grass what if a split second is all that stands between you making it home for dinner with your tribe or you becoming dinner. All of a sudden, time seems a bit more valuable. Let's pose a question. What if it were possible for the human brain to somehow buy its owner a bit more time in these dangerous situations? What if it could take some of that expensive, calorically speaking, and time-consuming conscious processing and transform it into an unconscious task. Luckily, our visual processing system evolved to do just that. We humans have a real knack for visual pattern recognition. This is particularly true in the instance of faces, which are some of the first things that human infants become attached to, right? You're a little baby, you're laying down in the crib, and what do you see? You see 
bunch of these faces looking down at you. And so you get really good really quickly at identifying faces. We even see them around us in places where they don't actually exist. If you've ever been sitting in traffic and you look at the back of the car in front of you and say, yeah, it kind of looks like a face. That's because humans are really kind of predisposed to see them, even in places where they're not really faces. So a bit of a tangent, but long story short, humans are really good at identifying all types of patterns. We're very visual creatures. And that makes sense because it's how we move around. We're not using sonar like dolphins or orcas. We're not using infrared heat signatures like a snake tracking its prey. We have to visually be able to assess, even in low-light situations where we might not have a ton of great inf information, visually speaking, we've got to be able to say, hey, that thing in front of me is shaped like a tree, and trees are solid, so if I try to walk through that thing, it's probably going to hurt. The tool that helps all this logic to occur unconsciously is what psychologists refer to as a schema, which, when used in social situations to make judgments about people, is also called a stereotype. And what's the thing that we all hate so much about stereotypes? It's that they're lazy. Instead of treating each person as an individual, we lump them into a group and make often harmful, often incorrect assumptions about how they do or will think or act. Oftentimes that's wrong. The thing is, today's quote-unquote laziness is what in the visual processing schemas of our ancestors could be defined as, good thing I correctly stereotyped that tiger-shaped thing in the grass, or else one of us would probably be dinner tonight. See, because our eyes can make shapes out of colors and textures that might be partially hidden or shaded, our ancestors were able to unconsciously kind of round up in these situations. They were able to take something that like 80% looked like a tiger figure, visually available, maybe there's some tall grass in the way, maybe, there, maybe it's not totally visible, and kind of their brains would just round that up and say, that's eh, 100% probably a tiger and let's not take a chance, so now we're running away. That's the early story of visual pattern recognition in humans. And here's why that matters when it comes to flavor. If you go back and listen to my interview with Professor Dan McCall, we talk about the route that flavor takes from the mouth and nose to the brain, which is where we experience it. And it's important to note here that flavor is not one of the five senses, but rather a fusion of two of them, taste and smell. Easy way to test this, of course, is to put some food in your mouth, maybe something sour or salty but with other flavor as well, and you pinch your nose shut, try not to breathe when you put it in your mouth and chew, and what will happen is you'll get the sourness or the saltiness, which are processed by your taste buds, but you won't get the full flavor until you unpinch your nose and breathe in while chewing, which allows the odor molecules in the food to be processed by your olfactory system. One obviously intriguing question is how do our brains fuse the taste and smell data from these two systems into the unified experience of flavor. And what does that process look like? This is something scientists have studied for ages. In his book, Neurogastronomy, neuroscientist Gordon Shepard succinctly describes the process like this. He says, quote, in sum, form a pointillist image, process it locally, format it globally, represent it in memory, enhance it with emotion, and perceive it consciously. 
each of these steps is performed by its own neural microcircuit. End quote. Wow, that's about as pithy of a statement about neuroscience as you're ever going to find. So let's break it down into steps, and I'll kind of give you an overview of what he means by each step. Step one, form a pointillist image. What the heck does that mean? Well, Dr. Gordon Shepard, who is going to be kind of our hunting guide here for the next segment of this episode, proposed a really fascinating metaphor that helps us to understand how we create things called smell images in the brain. And he used the work of 19th century neo-impressionist painters to do it. The painting technique of pointillism is basically when an artist will use a bunch of small dots or splotches on a canvas to create a larger picture. Instead of using sweeping strokes, all sheer he uses are a collection of tiny dots and dabs, all of different colors. And if you've ever seen the impressionist work of famous painters like Van Gogh or Monet, this is basically their method, but on steroids. Perhaps the most famous pointillist painter was Paul Signac, but my personal favorite is Theo van Rieselberg of Belgium, especially when his work features the play of light on water. I really love his paintings. It's really interesting studies of that phenomenon in the pointillist style. But getting back to neuroscience, basically what Dr. Shepard is saying is this, if you've ever walked into a room with large pointillist paintings on the wall, you might not, upon first entering that room, even notice they're made up of tiny little dots and dabs. Remember, this was the same shape-making tendency that helped our ancestors stay one step ahead of their predators. We take an image that's grainy or incomplete, and we kind of smooth out the edges and make it into the shape we think it should be, based on our brain's visual schemas. Then, as you walk closer to these paintings, the dots and dabs will start to materialize, and the image will become a bit fuzzy or grainy. If you put your nose two inches away from the painting, as long as some museum steward doesn't get nervous and ask you to leave, then you'll be looking at a pattern of splotches that has almost no meaning whatsoever. It's completely without context, and that's pretty disconcerting, considering a couple steps ago, you had a pretty good idea of what this picture looked like. Now it's just some dots and dabs. And this is why, in my opinion, pointillism is one of the best studies of perspective in all the art world. And this is why Shepard uses it as a metaphor to explain how flavor and particularly smell images get more and more refined as they make their way through the flavor processing systems of the brain. So, getting back to step one. Form a pointillist image. How does that work at the flavor level? Well, the individual dots and dabs in flavor perception are really individual electrical signals from our taste buds and olfactory receptors. And although these signals are similar, we're going to focus on just the olfactory receptors because of how much more complex they are than taste buds, of which there are only five types. We know these, right? Sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami or glutamate. Olfactory receptor types, however, number in the hundreds. And today we're pretty comfortable in kind of our society talking about numbers in the hundreds. We're in a big data generation, but think about this. Our eyes have photoreceptors called cones, and there are three types that all have different sensitivity to red, green, and blue light. But as a result of that, we can perceive over 10 million individual colors. And that's all just 
based on three types of photoreceptors. Now imagine if you were dealing with hundreds of types of receptors instead of just three. Yeah, that's the olfactory system. The world of smell is so diverse. It's like walking around in a world where we can see hundreds of times more colors than we see now. And sometimes we forget it's even there. It's kind of sad how much the smell world kind of goes unnoticed, how we kind of take it for granted. It just kind of runs as a background process. So when smell molecules find their way to a receptor site in the nasal cavity, that site sends an electrochemical signal to a structure called the olfactory bulb. And the collection of these electrochemical signals is our pointillist image. Basically, it would be like standing right up next to that pointillist painting. It's just bunch of dots and dabs doesn't mean a whole lot not a whole lot of context if you sample any individual grouping on that painting now let's jump to step two process it locally this is where the olfactory bulb takes information from the smell receptors about things like smell intensity and codes those into the representation of the smell image this can be compared to for example, adding depth perception to a visual experience. You've still got your colors, but maybe you need to add depth perception, a sense of scale. And what happens there is you go from a two-dimensional image to something with a bit more nuance and depth, something that looks more similar to our actual experience of the world. Then we have step three, format it globally. This is where the smell image gets prepped to be fused with information from the taste and touch receptors in the mouth and on the tongue. But to use a computer analogy here, a smell file and a taste file need to be reformatted into a common language before they can be successfully integrated. And this is what happens in an area of the brain just north of the olfactory bulb called the olfactory cortex. And after the brain system is done doing its magic to the image, you can think of it as having taken several steps back from our pointless painting to kind of where you can see the individual dots, but the image is now largely comprehensible. So the olfactory bulb flips its little kind of grainy pointless image to the olfactory cortex, and a little bit of reformatting happens, and a little bit more kind of clarity comes into the image. So once the pointless image is formatted globally in the olfactory cortex, we can talk about the last three steps kind of as working together as complementary processes. Represent it in memory, enhance it with emotion, and perceive it consciously. This all happens in the neocortex, which is the very front part of the human brain, the part that evolved last and is most developed in humans compared to other animals. The neocortex is where taste and smell information combined with things like texture, temperature, and visual inputs to form the overarching sensation of flavor. And not only that, but flavor is assembled basically right next door to all the brain structures responsible for our memories and emotions. So when we're consciously perceiving a flavor, it's not just a sterile image assembled by our senses, which are basically just machines. Our senses are machines. And they do what they're told. They do what they were made to do. They do it the same over and over again. It's not just that. It's a rich and emotionally charged experience informed to a large degree by our memories and other experiences in the past. And this is what usually resonates with us when we have a really noteworthy flavor experience. 
You walk into a room and immediately get whisked off to your childhood with memories of your mom's pumpkin pie or your grandfather chopping fresh vegetables. But none of this would be possible. Not the memories, not the pleasure, not even the experience of any flavor whatsoever without that pointillist image first created by our smell and taste receptors and then turned into a sensory masterpiece by the neural structures in our flavor processing system. So maybe this was more than you wanted to know about smell images or visual schemas or neo-impressionist art. But in my opinion, understanding the complex world that's going on beneath the surface can give you a real appreciation for flavor. And maybe appreciation isn't strong enough a word. I mean, for me, it's a childlike sense of wonder at the sheer complexity of what I experience so simply. And that's usually followed by a deep sense of humility upon recognizing how little I know and how much I still have to learn and experience. This is the reverence the hunter has for the prey he tracks. This is the humility the scientist encounters when she examines the data she's gathered and begins to see an unexpected trend emerging in what is perhaps my favorite book of all time the unexpected universe which is a collection of personal essays written by paleoanthropologist lauren isley the author recounts an incident where he falls on the sidewalk and breaks his nose this is in an essay called the inner galaxy and he writes quote my nose was smashed over on one side. Blood from a gash on my forehead was cascading over my face. Reluctantly, I explored further, running my tongue cautiously about my mouth and over my teeth. Under my face, a steady rivulet of blood was enlarging to a bright red pool on the sidewalk. It was then, as I peered nearsightedly at my ebbing substance there in the brilliant sunshine, that a surprising thing happened. Confusedly, painfully, indifferent to running feet and the anxious cries of witnesses about me, I lifted a wet hand out of this welter and murmured in compassionate concern, Oh, don't go. I'm sorry. The words were not addressed to the crowd gathering about me. They were inside and spoken to no one but a part of myself. I was quite sane, only it was an oddly detached sanity, for I was addressing blood cells, phagocytes, platelets, all the crawling, living, independent wonder that had been part of me and now, through my folly and lack of care, were dying like beached fish on the hot pavement. A great wave of compassion and contrition, even of adoration, swept through my mind, a sensation of love on a cosmic scale, for this experience was in its way, as vast a catastrophe as would be that of a galaxy consciously suffering through the loss of its solar systems. End quote. There's that sense of scale we've been talking about this whole time with pointillism. When you work with something day in, day out, sometimes you can barely recognize what's special about it or how it works. But when you step back and admire the sheer scale and specificity of what's going on below your perception, the entire world is a miracle. I'm going to leave you today with a couple challenges. The first is to start working with flavor more inductively by learning to recognize the small data points that add up to the larger trend. 
I find that a flavor journal works well for this purpose, and you can make yours in any way you'd like. Record notes on your phone, in a notebook you keep on your bar, or even shared with friends on a Facebook group or a Google Doc. Like other mindfulness techniques, such as journaling and meditation, the flavor journal can help you unlock and appreciate a whole new kind of value in what you're mixing up behind the bar. And my second challenge to you is to pick a flavor schema or stereotype that you have and break it. If you think gin tastes like pine trees, find a gin you actually like. It's out there waiting for you. If you typically only drink clear spirits, for example, try something aged. Move yourself closer to the pointless image of flavor, even to a point where it might become strange or chaotic. And try to understand the mechanics of what you normally perceive from a distance. Adventure into a place where you need to learn to love the nuances, even when that's uncomfortable. I hope this episode has inspired you to start learning more about flavor and how many cool things are going on beneath the surface in your brain when you sip on your Manhattan or your martini. But for now, I'll leave you to process and ponder the unexpected universe of flavor and the strangely beautiful pointless images it houses. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart, or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.